Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, you. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. This is Chris Stemp. I'm one of the hosts. I have next to me my buddy. And this is John Rojas. That's my buddy. That's my buddy. My buddy and me. Hey, guys. Man, I love doing the show. I really do. I have a scenario for you that's going to lead into this show. John, you might want to weigh in since you're heavy in the dating scene. Say you meet a girl and you start chatting. You start talking about family life. And you say, oh, do you have any brothers and sisters? And she says, nope, I'm an only child. Tell me, and don't lie, you don't think in your head, run as fast as you can because she's going to be needy and selfish and rely on me for everything and won't know how to change a tire and all that. Tell me you don't. Don't hate me. It honestly never crossed the mind. Um, All right, fine. Forget John. Everybody else out there. I know I'm not the only one that, okay, maybe I'm not like run, but sometimes they have a bad rep is all I'm getting at. And I think that's a lot of the reason why I found this week's guest so interesting. This book jumped out at me and it's not something I would have thought about. So we're going to talk to you about the only child bias, if you will. Before we get in that, a couple of things that we want to say thanks for listening to the show. Head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Check us out. We write posts weekly, and we are doing newsletters soon, which is going to be great. Sign up for the newsletter on the right-hand side. And I'm sure you guys have noticed that we have sponsors on these episodes now, and it means the world to us that these companies are reaching out, believe in the show, 
please support them because they support us. Yeah, and I mean, they're good companies. I love the the products that we're talking about here are interesting stuff. I've purchased every one. I've actually used every one of them so far. So I hope that doesn't keep up because then I'll just be spending any of our sponsorship money. But anyway, so thanks for tuning in. This week, we talk with Lauren Sandler. Lauren is, she's a journalist. She's been writing forever. She's written for Time, the New York Times, Slate, the Atlantic, all types of great publications. She has a new book out called One and Only, The Freedom of Having an Only Child and the Joy of Being One. And as you'll hear in the episode, we just talk about that stigma that goes with if you're a parent only having one child, I'm sure you might know when people say, oh, when are you having your next? Or how many are you going to have? Or when are you going to give them brothers and sisters? And then if you are an only child, I can imagine. Um, as Chris violently pointed out I, look, not even two minutes ago. Look, my opinion has changed. Okay, I listen to science. That's what the show is for. And so, I mean, look, I stand corrected. She sounded awesome. I love what she had to say. And she, it appears, had dug deep into it all. We're going to hand it over to Lauren here in a minute. But before we do, please tell a friend about the show, whether it's through Facebook, Twitter, in person. doesn't matter to me. Just tell one person. And then if you've got an extra minute as well, head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review there. That really helps out the show. It moves the show up the charts. It allows more people to see it. And we appreciate it a ton. Here we go with Lauren Sandler. Again, Lauren, thanks so much for being on. It's an interesting subject. And I don't know exactly how I found your book, One and Only is the title. I don't know how I found it, but and it's not even a subject I've thought about often. And then I read a little bit into it and realized I'm at the age I'm thinking about having kids. I have never once thought that I would have one kid. It's always been, are you going to have children? And then two or more. I don't, right. and, and I just find that Are you going to have children as though we don't have them one at a time? So, right. of course, increasingly we don't, but some of us still do. <laughs> right. And, and that, that thought almost never comes in. Why has the single child been so vilified? Well, it really is like the entire conversation around what it means to have an only child begins and ends with don't have one. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. I've been puzzling over the ongoing vilification of the only child for a long time now. It's not something I thought about when I was an only child myself. It was only when I became the mother of one and I started getting all the social flack when I started hearing from strangers, you know, oh, no, you wouldn't do that to your child. But I started thinking there is something worth investigating here. and. The feeling is that only children are, are misfits, you know, we are lonely and selfish and maladjusted. And so, you know, it's funny, I, I swore to myself when I was pregnant that I would not write a book related to motherhood. <laughs> <laughs> I swore to myself, I will, you know, I will keep writing about war and I will keep writing about <laughs> ideology. But the more I lived in, you know, the trenches of our child-obsessed country with and only child, I thought, oh, this kind of is war and ideology, isn't it? And I started reporting out what the problem was, why people were giving me such a hard time about just having one kid, why they thought it meant that my very happy daughter was destined to be so lonely and spoiled, and why I must be such an incurably selfish person for having her, or, you know, because when I'm an only with an only myself, a doubly selfish person. Oh, you're in trouble. 
Yeah, right. Um, and so what I found kind of amazed me because I think that a lot of us feel like, you know, those stereotypes died in the 90s. They died at the dawn of political correctness and that if we have notions of people as a certain way, it must be based on something other than just mere bias. But the fact is that what I found, and frankly, anyone could Google this and find it themselves. It was hardly a, a work of investigative reporting to get this far. What I found was that there have been hundreds of studies done over decades and decades and decades that all disprove the notion that only children are lonely, selfish, and maladjusted. In fact, what they all say when you put them all together, as researchers have done, is that only children are no different than anyone else, except we tend to, and I will totally sound like an only child here, forgive <laughs> me, we tend to to be higher achieving, do better on intelligence tests, and have higher self-esteem. So, you know, for people who are really looking towards their kids' success, you'd think that that would be a major advertisement for only children. Now, I mean, that's not really what my husband and I think about when we think about raising a kid. We just want to have a kid who's a good person and a happy person. But you'd think that, you know, in the sort of rat race of making kids you know, develop the middle class or having those kids who can, who you can apply to Harvard for when they're in the womb, you'd think that this would be like the greatest selling point for only children. <laughs> and instead the feeling is like, no, you just shouldn't do it. Yeah. And it just doesn't happen. I, I find that bizarre that in a world with such, you know, free flow of information that you can still have these things, these well-known facts, if you will, go hidden and go undiscovered. It's truly bizarre. And so there's this woman at the University of Texas who has an office up in that famous tower over campus. Her name is Tony Salvo, and she's sort of the biggest researcher on only child issues. She's been doing it for decades. She's done these huge analyses of all of the studies ever done out there and has conducted plenty of her own here and in China. And, you know, I asked her, why is this not a story that gets told? And she said, because there's no story to it. So you say only the, only children are just like anyone else. But there's no story there. There's no drama there. And I sat and I thought about that, and I thought, you know what? Parenting in America today is one of the biggest dramas I can imagine. Mm. <laughs> and so if we can talk about this topic from the standpoint of not just who kids become, but also who parents allow themselves to become, if we can talk about who only children are in the context of who we might be, if we allowed ourselves to have one, that is a story worth telling. And that is actually what impelled me to say, okay, I'm going to write a book that they're going to put a you know, pair of little kid shoes on the cover of, which I didn't think I would ever do. Yeah. And you know, I have a dog, one singular dog, and I'm even thinking about getting another one because I look at him, I go, he's got to be lonely. He doesn't have another dog to like slap in the head or whatever. And I imagine that's the same thing with kids. That's always been my assumption. I have an older brother that I loved getting beat up by and everything like that. So I feel like it's a natural assumption to make that you're better adjusted. And I feel like even going back to when we lived in tribes and all that, you know, it's the more the merrier type thing. So I feel like it's a hard code to crack. You know, it's a hard myth to bust. Well, my feeling is that part of why we've had this myth for so long is because 
first, as we were evolving as a species, I mean, it is the tribe idea. We needed to have more of us in order to survive. And then when we grew into an agrarian population, we needed to have more children to farm the land. Children were a labor force. They were your life insurance policy. The more of them you had, the more you had a chance at actually making it, like making it alive. And then the Industrial Revolution came around, and that changed. And kids suddenly went from earning you money to costing you money. And then women changed. You know, women were not needed in the same way on the home front, and they started being needed in the workplace. That became something that many of us opted into, or many of us didn't have a choice about whether to opt into. And, you know, things changed. Things changed a lot. And women started wanting a little bit more of their lives than domesticity or the constant balance between domesticity and work. And I think that really what has happened is we have not come to terms with what real freedom for women looks like. And as long as we keep telling women, have more kids, be at home more, feel guilty about it, sacrifice yourself, give, 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 we won't really have to confront what true freedom for women looks like because that is a complicated thing for society to deal with. When you did all your research for this book, and that you know includes reviewing all kinds of research that other people have done as well, what did you find with the parents that had one kid versus that had multiple kids? Because I look at this and I think maybe we're looking at this as kids. Oh, how does this affect the children being only one child? But how does it affect the parents? Because as a parent, you've got to split your love or time, devotion, that type of thing. Did you notice anything about parents differing between having one child and multiple children? it's a choice. And for other parents, it's not a choice. And that, of course, leads to two very different stories. It's interesting. There's some research out there that shows that parents who, you know, show a lot of confidence in having just one kid have kids who are very happy being only children. And parents who are really visibly pining for the children they don't have, they're the ones who have children, who have kids who really wish that they had siblings. It makes sense in a way. But, you know, there's a lot of data out there from time use studies about how we actually spend our time with no kids or with one kid or more. And there's a lot of well-being research out there that looks at how people's self-defined happiness or life satisfaction goes up or down with the number of kids that they have. I, I think that it's different for everyone. And this was a real challenge for me reporting this book is, so we've got all the data, and all of the data makes a very, very strong case for having only children, both for the sake of the kids and for the sake of the parents. Um, but then we have the lived experience, and the fact is people want different things. People find happiness in different ways, and people thrive in different ways. And the notion that there is a one-size-fits-all family, whether that's a 2.5-kid solution or a one-kid solution, I just don't buy it. I think that the issue is that we have made this general notion of what a family should look like that doesn't always line up with how people really want to live. I mean, there are plenty of people who, you know, want to get their work done, come home, sit in front of the TV, read a novel maybe, have some dinner, snuggle up with the kids, do it again. And that is a really fulfilling life. And I do not say that sarcastically. There are people who get a lot of fulfillment out of having a life which is simpler and more family focused. That isn't me. And that isn't a lot of people I know. And a lot of people I know are actually not having any kids at all because it feels like such a sacrifice and it feels like such a 
a loss of the liberation that they cherish in their lives, of having the freedom to go to a rock show, go have dinner with friends, take a walk, have an inner life. All these things that we really value before we have children, and I frankly have not become any less interested in since I've had a kid. You know, my daughter has added to my life, but she hasn't detracted from my desires for a life beyond her, sometimes which includes her and sometimes which doesn't, because I really believe in having a liberated adulthood, and that is something that we have really lost track of. You know, the notion is that maternal selfishness is, you know, the (laughs) worst thing in the world, that we should just be giving our all for our kids all the time. In fact, we are parenting more hours a week than we did when we were stay-at-home mothers, and simultaneously we're working more hours a week than any other country on the planet. And that, to me, is a recipe for insanity. And so there are, you know, there are plenty of people who can manage that and who can manage a life outside that with more than one kid, um, who can do creative work like that, who can you know, have rich adult friendships and meaningful marriages and, and create and live and thrive in a way that I don't know that I can. Part of that for me is financial. You know, I'm a writer. My husband's a photographer. Those are not the best paying jobs. And we live in New York City. We live in Brooklyn, which is not the cheapest place to live. And, you know, we like it that way. We worked hard to get where we are and to have a very fulfilling and satisfying life together. And if we had another kid, we would have to dismantle a lot of that. And that's really scary to us. And we also don't really know why we would, because the three of us are a very happy little family together. We have a really good time. We really love each other. We have room for spontaneity. We travel. It's, you know, kind of cuddly and delicious and nice. And I just don't think I'd want to change it. Yeah, and you know what's funny is most people I talk to only recently when I actually thought about the whole kid thing, they'll say, you know, having a kid or multiple kids is the best and worst thing in your life. It's the most difficult. I watched my brother go through it now, basically, as a a one-year-old. And, you know, I'll talk to my parents and they'll say, yeah, but the best times in my life were with children. And then it becomes one of those terrifying decisions because you're like, what if I got it wrong? You can't just decide when they're five, you know what? This whole thing wasn't for me. My mother used to always say to me, you can leave any man, you can quit any job, you can sell any house. One thing is forever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I I guess that's why I love your message. It's not, I mean, you do advocate in your book a little bit and everything, you know, the, the one child family works well for you and to dismantle that stereotype. And, and that's fine. But I think the overall message being be clear on why you make those decisions. Try not to let these biases weigh on your decision without thinking about the economics and what it's going to do for your personal life. You know, one of the bits of data that resonated with me the most, which I think about every day that I stumbled across, is the notion that most people say that they have their first kids for themselves and the second kid for the benefit of their first kid. And I feel like, you know, for so many of us, it's hard enough to get into that first one. <laughs> you know, as you were saying, it is, it is a major leap, and it's a leap 
that you will be stuck with in a very beautiful way, but in a very, you know, demanding, life-changing way. I know it's not quite as a leap to, to have a second one, or at least people say it's not. I don't know it firsthand, but it is still a leap. And so I do wonder what would happen if people didn't feel like they had to have that second kid for the benefit of their first, if they had different information, not just about their kid's happiness and their kid's success, but also their own. And it makes me wonder if, frankly, that would really change the shape of our families, and if doing so, that might really change our society a lot. You know, so many of us are so sequestered in our domestic cocoons because we don't have any more time or energy for a life beyond the workplace and beyond a home life. And that means that we've disengaged so much from our communities, from our social structures. So, you know, for example, I, I reported a lot of this book in Europe where there's really good family policy, where the only child choice there means, well, I could have another kid. It sounds hard, but yeah, there's really great daycare until six o'clock in the evening at the earliest. And, you know, college will be paid for completely and it will be really good. And there will be really decent health care for my kid. And, you know, I'd have these conversations with people who would be agonizing about whether they had a second kid. And I would just think, man, I wish I had your problems. Right. But part of it is that, you know, to have parents advocate for better family policy in this country, I mean, who has time for that? Who has the energy to be part of political advocacy, to be galvanizing a movement for better social policy that feels like such an uphill battle? I wonder what we could do, not just for the country at large, for, but for our country as parents, if we actually had some more time on our hands. That's the truth. And you mentioned community, and I, I actually look back to when I was growing up. I grew up in a very, I guess, suburban area. If I didn't have little brothers, no offense to them, I think I would have been fine because there were so many kids in our neighborhood. We played all the time. Everybody was always hanging out, and there was this real sense of community. And now I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and everything is based in high-rises. I never see kids playing together anymore in any of that kind of stuff. I wonder how much of it has changed over time where people are feeling like they're forced to have a second child to give their kid a playmate. Because, you know, oh, well, you hear that all the time from people that it's a choice that's made for companionship when it's funny because psychologists say that it's really conflict and not companionship <laughs> that develops you with a sibling. But, you know, I think you're right. It's, it's interesting. Most of my daughter's friends have siblings. And so we are often the ones who kind of make those social moments happen. But, you know, for example, on Saturday night, we had her friend Zoe and her brother Quinn over for a sleepover. And so, you know, we had two kids here for 24 hours, and it was awesome. They totally trashed the backyard, and we had sort of an aborted attempt to roast marshmallows in the middle of Brooklyn that was disastrous. And <laughs> we made messy pancakes in the morning. They slept on the living room floor. It was great. But I think that to a lot of people, it also kind of looked like the 70s. You know what I mean? <laughs> because we don't have messy houses filled with friends in the same way anymore, in part because after after you work and you pick up the kid from soccer practice and you do the shopping and all this stuff, I mean, like, organizing a kid's social life takes energy and time. And I think the idea is, well, if you've got a sibling at home, maybe that's not as necessary. But for parents of only children who are mindful parents, 
you know, we make that happen. And I think we build really strong communities because of it. And now I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here. Do you think at all, given that the, you know, economics of having a child have just gotten out of control, they're so expensive, and, you know, we're waiting to have children till later in life because we're becoming more, you know, focused on ourselves, that this kind of research is really a way of uh, making ourselves basically feel better for not having a larger family or anything like that. And the only reason I ask is because, you know, I think you know what you're used to and you appreciate what you are used to. And I, like I said, I had a brother or have a brother and he is by far, you know, my best friend in the world outside of my fiance, I guess I have to throw that in, but, um, (laughs) and I can't imagine life without him. And I I don't know if I would want to do that to my child. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, it's awesome that your brother's your best friend. That's great. That isn't what it is for a lot of people. Um, and I think that when it, when that happens, that's a beautiful thing. I think even when it doesn't happen, it's also still a beautiful thing. You know, if you have a brother, that's a great thing. If you don't hate each other, the (laughs) problem is that there is no guarantee. And, you know, interviewing people about their siblings was really interesting because some people will tell you fantastic stories of incredible closeness and other people will tell you, you know, horrifying stories of resentment and silence. And, it's a bit of a crapshoot. And so I do think that there is an element of that. I do think that all of the research that I cite is incredibly credible. You know, when sociologists and psychologists are investigating these questions, they are often looking to prove a hypothesis, which is the opposite of what they prove. You know, there are often people who are out there saying, okay, well, we want to disprove this ruling knowledge that, you know, only children are just fine, which is why, you know, they test out the narcissism index every other year, always with the same hypothesis in the abstract saying, you know, to prove the case that only children are more narcissistic. And then you get to the conclusion. It's like, well, yet again, we didn't do it. And, you know, I did look really hard to find whatever damning news about only children I could find. I included those papers. And then I also included some of the more difficult parts of the lived experience that you can't find in a research paper. Stories about people who, you know, were dealing with their parents' end of life on their own. Stories Mm -hmm. about people whose parents had gotten divorced and they had sort of been cast in, you know, the spouse role all of a sudden in middle school. People who grew up in rural areas where they weren't close to anyone and it was incredibly hard for them. So I don't think that this is the perfect thing for everyone. My point is that I don't think it's worse than anything else. And we've been telling people that it is for so long. So I think that if you want to have more kids, that's great. But the notion that you would be giving your child the gift of a sibling if it's not something that you also want in your own family strikes me as problematic if that's something that society is simply telling you to do. I think that is a is a perfect way of putting it. I really do. I, I totally appreciate that and, and like your thought process behind that because you bring up a lot of good things that you've obviously done your research on. Things like, you know, parents' end of life. I know that was one of the things that my, my grandparents said, you know, we're happy because we know on our way out, we'll have a big kind of going, going out party. You know what I mean? Because they had eight <laughs> kids. And so, so you've obviously looked into that and, and seen all of those things. 
One... It's a tough issue. It is what I call the Greek tragedy of only childhood. And honestly, when interviewing people who are really ambivalent about having second kids and did it anyway, a reason that a lot of people have given me is this is the thing that I couldn't contend with. And it's funny because the research tells us that eldest siblings, eldest daughters or closest residing siblings are the people who are responsible for most elder care. That, you know, it ends up being almost an only child experience in terms of the blood, sweat and tears of it all. You know, that doesn't mean a damn thing to me because I think that there is an existential hole in the heart of the only child. I mean, so many of us, so many of my friends are only children, so many people who I've interviewed certainly myself, you know, we think about our parents dying a lot. That might not be a good thing to be a little consumed with that. You know, my parents are total pragmatists and they they bought long-term health insurance to try to deal with this, knowing what nursing care is like, knowing how expensive and consuming it can be to care for people who are elderly. And I really appreciate that, but I also want to look at them sometimes and say, I know, but what about my heart? (laughs) And I think that that's tough. Really good point. I, I love how thought out some of this stuff is. One of Thank the things you. that I I need you to tell me that you <laughs> looked into this and with your own experience being an only child, your your own it's a daughter, right? Yeah. Your own daughter being an only child. Are only children really not that much of an attention seeker? Like I just imagine almost not dating somebody if they're an only child. Just being like, yeah, just being like, no way. Yeah, terrified. So can you imagine if you had said something else instead of an only child? If you had mentioned a different group there, you know, it's so funny. I I met someone last week who told me that she had interviewed for a job about 10 years ago, and it came up in the job interview that she was an only child. This was a makeup artist who was, you know, getting me ready for some live TV last week. And the boss said to her, you know, I just have a policy of not hiring only children. Oh. And, and I thought, okay, so what's your boss had a policy of not hiring people who were black? Right. And he gave you a reason for that. That would be a, a major discrimination suit on your hands. But because it's only children, because for some reason, it's okay to talk about this group of people as though we have these tendencies, even though they don't show up in the data. I mean, it's tough. Yeah. Honestly, the whole attention-seeking thing... The fact is that only children do tend to be more precocious. You know, our vocabularies tend to be a little bit richer in part because we tend to grow up around more adult language and more adults speak more words to us every day. It's really interesting that the number of kids you have in your family divides the number of words that an adult directly addresses to you every single day, which is a major predictor for verbal ability. Wow. I thought I found that fascinating. But that said... So, you know, the notion of the precocious only child does carry some weight. But the question of attention, I mean, that's just sort of a question of mindful parenting. All of this stuff is. It's Mm -hmm. the same thing as spoiling. You know, if if you're raising an only child, there are some things to be aware of, which means not shining the light too bright on that kid, meaning not giving that kid absolutely everything that they're asking for. These are things that I would hope parents would do anyway, no matter how big their siblings set is, but with an only child, it's really important. And so I do think that if you end up with that sort of kid, you got to just take some responsibility for that as a parent and be mindful of it. It's funny that Chris asked about being an attention seeker as a only child, because I come from a family of three boys and my middle brother was the attention seeker 
growing up. Like he was always the one doing funny things or putting on performances and skits and all that kind of stuff, trying to get the family's attention, that kind of thing. So I'm sure there's stigmas about childs one through 10 within our society. Yeah, but well, there are, and middle child more things so. In terms, of, in terms of birth order, but the stories that we attach to only children, I think, tend to be a little bit stronger. Um, sure. Because they do enter into this stereotype a little bit more. And it's interesting because what I have found in my interviews is that people will describe opposite characteristics in terms of being only children. So, for example, you could be really shy and explain that as being an only child. Or you could be an intention seeker and explain Mm. that because you're an only child. I actually interviewed a couple where they're both only children. One of them is a total loner. One of them is a total social butterfly. They both explain themselves as being like that because they're only children. And they're married to each other. So who knows? That's so true. And it was funny, as I was kind of researching the book and getting ready for the interview, I was thinking in my head, the only child in terms of how you're going to be judged is it's going to be worse to be is an only child over a middle child even right like like middle childs are always vilified but man the only child even trumps that and that's tough to do (laughs) we're the bottom of the totem pole what can i tell you yeah but that's why i think this is such good kind of timely research for something that i never thought i'd have been interested in i was like Wow, if there's science behind it, because that's what we try to do on the show. We just, if there's science behind it and you can convince us, then you're the expert. And that's what it kind of sounds like. So here's another little bit of science if we're going to talk science, which is the environmental science aspect of this. So this is something that I have really puzzled over. Um, you know, we used to talk about population as part of of the green discussion, I guess before we called it the green discussion, when we just called it environmentalism. Um, The notion was that if we had a population of people who were consuming our resources at the rate they were, it wouldn't be tenable for very long. And then that conversation phased out a little bit. We replaced it with, you know, cloth supermarket bags and the right kind of light bulbs and the very small choices that could make you feel better about what you were doing. But, you know, the truth is that it's just a different conversation that we need to be having now. The issue is not mass world population numbers. The issue is the number of people who are consuming like Americans. So, you know, I could be the greenest person on earth. I'm still raising a kid who goes to an air-conditioned school, travels on airplanes, eats cheeseburgers. She lives like an American, which means she consumes 10 times the resources of an African kid, for example. And I don't mean that, you know, Africa in general. I mean, literally, the research is that an American child consumes 10 times what a child in Nigeria consumes and has 10 times the carbon footprint for it. And yet, we keep telling Americans or other people in the developed world, don't have just one kid. Have more. Have more. You're not a good person if you don't have more. And it's crazy to me that the onus is on us to reproduce more instead of to conserve our resources at a time when I feel like we're all facing down such an environmental crisis right now. So, you know, these hurricanes blow through, and yet people are still agonizing about whether they should have another kid, even if they don't really want to. And that, to me, feels like a reason that we really need to change this conversation. That's definitely a good point. It's a tough sell to a lot of people because when you start talking about children as users of resources, it it takes it away from the touchy-feely, emotional, maternal or paternal aspect of having children. So I imagine you get a lot of backlash on that one. 
Oh, it's even worse than that. It's because the population, the anti-population movement, totally smacked of eugenics in the past. It was a question of who has the right to breed and who doesn't. You know, it reminds us of a time of forced sterilization or forced abortions. I mean, it is terrible. This is, you know, the draconian policy that threatened to go alongside this way of thinking was really nuts. But I feel like if that's a policy that we can implement on a personal level, if we can say we're only going to have the amount of kids that we want to have, that we want to love, that we want to bring into our lives for ourselves, that could easily change that. And I think that the economics of it are making it more that way. Because I know, personally, ideally, I'd love to have a lot of kids just to, I like family, I like being around a lot of people all the time. But I also know, unless I hit the lottery, I will never be able to afford it. It's just not in the cards for me, especially in D.C. So it's one of those things, you know, that decides it. Yeah, yeah, well, so what kids cost... The inflation of what kids cost so outpaces general inflation. It is crazy. And, okay, so here's how much kids cost. The USDA believes that the average kid who was born in 2011 will cost about $260,000 to raise. That includes people born under poverty. So if your family makes a total of $100,000 a year, you can expect to spend $400,000 raising that kid before you even start saving for college. It is unbelievable. And when you start adding that up and then you start factoring the opportunity cost to have kids, so that means that when women have kids, they take time off, they sacrifice wages for it, they sacrifice future promotions for it. When you put all of that together, each kid costs by conservative estimates, I mean like really conservative estimates, like Brian Kaplan, who wrote a book called Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, which is trying to get people to have more and more children, he thinks that at minimum, it's costing each woman a million dollars per kid, just an opportunity cost. That's before you start paying your quarter of a million dollars to your half a million dollars per kid. And you start thinking about that, and it feels like, oh, of course, whenever the economy tanks, fertility tanks, too. Well, it looks like Chris is getting another dog. No, I was just going to say, I was just going to say advice to everyone, just marry rich and and then your problems are solved. I know. My grandmother always told me to do that and I knew I never would. I know. It happens. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. And your book, One and Only, The Freedom of Having an Only Child and the Joy of Being One is, it's great. It's a topic, like I said, We don't talk about often enough, but it's in everybody's mind. Is there anywhere else that our listeners can go kind of read? I know you do a lot of writing, so read what you write, follow you on Twitter, things like that. Yeah, I don't tweet as often as I should, but I do have a website, which is laurensandler.com. I'm writing for a lot of different places. I have a cover story coming out in time next month on actually what it means to have no kids, which is very related to this conversation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you can just look for my writing online, and I really look forward to hearing from readers. So anyone who wants to drop me a line, my email is on my website, and I welcome the conversation. Great. Well, we'll put that up on our post. And again, thanks so much for being on the show. We really, really appreciate it. It's really fun talking to you guys. I appreciate it, too. All right, Lauren. Have a great night. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Lauren Sandler. Her book, One and Only, is fantastic. Please head over to her website, laurensandler.com. Shoot her an email, a tweet. Let her know that our show put you on to her. 
and that you guys enjoyed her conversation. You know, just make some type of communication with her and let her know that you heard her on Smart People Podcast. Actually, John, that's a very interesting and smart thing you did say. Appreciate it when people tweet and say, hey, heard about you at Smart People Podcast. Thanks for joining us. As you can tell, we are getting very good at releasing these things every Sunday right around 6 o'clock. So make sure to subscribe. You don't even have to think about it. We appreciate you listening. We've already recorded next week's episode. Gonna be killer. I can promise you you're gonna like it. It's right up everyone's alley. So tune in next week. See you then. And a little shout out to Harry Beckwith in Essex, England. I think that's right.